The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome Dr. Theo Colburn. She is the president of the Endocrine Disruption Exchange based in Paonia, Colorado. She is Professor Emeritus at the University of Florida in Gainesville. She is the author of numerous scientific publications about the compounds that interfere with hormones and other chemical messengers that control development in wildlife and humans. She holds a Ph.D. from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in zoology with an emphasis in epidemiology, toxicology, and water chemistry. She has a master's in science from the Western State College of Colorado in freshwater ecology, and she holds a bachelor's in pharmacy from Rutgers University. Dr. Colburn, it's an honor to have you on the show. Well, I'm glad to be with you. You have won many awards. You have held many positions in the federal government. You've been with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. But you were first intrigued by endocrine disruptors when you were at the University of Wisconsin and you were looking at Great Lakes ecology. What happened to set you off on this path? Well, it just so happened there while I was working on my Ph.D., which, by the way, was a distributed minor in epidemiology, toxicology, and water chemistry. So while teaching there, I was assigned to teach limnology in one of the departments at the university, and that is the study of freshwater lakes. As I sat and listened to the professors that were determining what species of fish we would have to stock in the Great Lakes because The animals were not making it through to adulthood, and we had to start stocking the lakes with species that we thought could become economically important and provide our food base. And as I sat and listened to them lecture and what they were doing, they never took into consideration the possibility that chemicals could be the reasons why the fish weren't reproducing in the lakes. They had a lot of theories at the time. You know, the lamprey eel was coming in and stopping them from reproducing or maturing and uh, overfishing, those kinds of things. But they never actually really considered toxic chemicals. So after I finished my Ph.D., I ended up in Washington and was invited to work with a team that had been asked to do a report on the state of the health of the Great Lakes. Now, if that wasn't serendipitous, I can't think of anything else. And as I sat and looked at the dossier, it was only one page long, looking at this report that this team was going to have to put together, and it was nothing but a group of political scientists, three from Canada and actually two from the United States, and they would hire me on as the scientist, which then gave me the opportunity to get into the literature concerning the state of all the other animals that are in the lakes, other than just fish, the economically important fish species, but also those fish that should be in the lake throughout the food web and all the birds and the mammals. And what I discovered was that 
practically every species that was dependent upon their food source from the lakes. The adult animals were having trouble reproducing, and if they could produce offspring, the offspring didn't make it through to adulthood. They just didn't survive. And then as I began plotting, what were the reasons, what were the health problems they found in the 16 or 17 top predator species in the lakes? They were quite similar. And most of them were the result of, consequently, changes in the thyroid system, the endocrine system, the behaviors in the animals. It was really very interesting. So it was this tremendous leak to chemicals that could possibly be interfering with how animals develop, how they reproduce, etc. And it was from there then that more and more information broke. And then about 10 years after the wildlife biologists were reporting all this information, by the way, the wildlife biologists were able to show that the concentrations of PCBs, remember those fire retardants, Mm -hmm. in the tissues of the animals, was definitely related to their ability to reproduce or not reproduce or have healthy animals. Ten years after that research began to reach journals, a new paper came out, a chilling paper of a study that was done of the children who were born of women who ate fish out of the Great Lakes. So that would move the mother right up into the top of the food web, just like all of these other animals at the top of the food web. And they were having trouble with their children. They were having low birth weight, and they actually, as they matured, had ADHD, and they also seemed to have problems with their immune system. So this all seemed to come together, and it just seemed so real that we could have possibly overlooked all of this that then I began looking into more about the importance of the endocrine system. And everyone must understand that the endocrine system is that overarching system that basically controls how we reproduce, how we develop, how we function, whether we are going to be socially able to talk with each other and communicate, right down to our ability to process information and arrive at some conclusions about the consequences of what we are doing. This is a very, very important system. And this system operates with chemicals, called hormones, and these hormones operate in our bodies at about part per trillion or part per billion, very, very low concentration. Well, over the years, we've begun to realize now that there are a lot of chemicals that we have been producing and using that have become very much a part of our lives that basically we're economically dependent upon, and we wouldn't be living... Like we are right now, I wouldn't be talking to you over a telephone, I'm sure, with all the communication applications that we have where we are using the products that grew out of basically using fossil fuels to try to improve our lives. PCBs were made from benzene, which is a the byproduct of producing natural oil and gas, a toxic byproduct on which they put chlorine. Hmm. And then... That chlorinated compound was the one that they began to use. And actually, what we found out about the PCBs was that they do build up in the food web in the Great Lakes. Between each level in the food web, there may be a 10 to a 250-fold increase in the amount 
of that particular persistent bioaccumulative chemical in that animal, in that system. So we suddenly began to realize we are really having a great deal of problem. But that's how this all grew out of it. It's important to remember we are operating with chemicals in our body at extremely low concentrations, and today we are living with lots of chemicals that have never been tested at these concentrations or for what they can do when that sperm enters the egg and disturb that wonderful chemistry in the womb that we have inherited over, say, a billion years. Well, and the chemicals also aren't tested in combination with each other. And what we're typically told is that there's a safe level, right? The EPA says, yes, we found this herbicide or we found this pesticide in the water, but it falls under EPA's limits for harm. Well, the problem here is that we focus on cancer. Yeah. Chemicals were taken and tested on thousands of animals to find out if they caused a case of cancer or a couple cases of cancer. I mean, it was ridiculous, and we focused on cancer. Cancer, in most instances, is a rare event. But the problem is that we use high doses testing adult male animals, and we've watched the humans, too. We've looked at what happens to adult males who are exposed to these chemicals. And, yes, the toxicology is there that these are very dangerous chemicals, but we never bothered to look at what they could do at the concentration at which we are exposed to in our environment every day. So our laws are all written based on this probability or the odds of getting cancer. Mm -hmm. They are not based on whether we are going to get an endocrine-like effect, obesity, diabetes, Parkinson's, you name it. So the problem here is we've got a, a legal system right now, a policy that governs how we deal with toxic chemicals that has totally overlooked this problem. So when somebody tells you, well, EPA says this is safe, that is based on a standard that's based on cancer and at high-dose testing. Hmm. What we need right now is a complete revamping of the regulatory system that controls and determines how those organizations or those institutions we've established to protect our health can move ahead and protect us. Do we want to talk a little bit about some of the specific illnesses that are related to these compounds? We've seen striking increases, for example, in autism. The latest data out of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was 1 in 57 boys, 1 in 88 children. You predict we're going to see another increase next year. Is that related to these endocrine disruptors in our environment, do you think? If you want to play the game of odds, I say the odds are pretty high that you're going to find out that, yes, but the problem is it's probably a lot more than just one chemical. Right. It's a combination of many chemicals that, remember, when the sperm enters the egg, you've got a single cell sitting there, and it's getting these messages to begin to split, and that cell splits and then each one of those cells split. And they keep getting these messages telling them when to split. And then the first thing they do is form a ball called the blastulotrophic gastrule, if you want to call it that. Anyway, I, want to, I don't want to get into the technical terms. Sure. But we develop this ball that then more and more cells keep splitting. They move about. You know, this is within hours after fertilization takes place. Within days 
by then you begin to see this mass that's growing. We know now there are chemicals that are capable of moving in at that very early stage and changing that very early development. Now, if you foul up one little stage in that development, you know what it's like if you get the wiring wrong in a house mm-hmm. and then it can affect everything else in the house. It's the same type of thing. It's like getting a virus in your computer and you don't know where it's going to go next. Mm-hmm. This is what we're dealing with. And so many organ systems are involved. And I was, oh, yes. You know, so it's, it's amazing. You know, remember, everybody knows the thyroid. I mean, they know the pancreas. They may know the adrenal, they know the gonads, you know, the testes, the ovaries, the uterus, those type of things. But what we know now is that those are the ones, as endocrinology itself, that wonderful discipline is developing. We now know that there are parts of the brain, the stomach, the intestines, and the heart are all organs, part of the endocrine system. They get messages from the hormones from other parts of the body that affect them, and they also send out hormones to the tissue that they're involved with and connected with. So the endocrine system is really something that I think most people have not been able to conceive the magnitude of what it is in our body that's controlling how we develop and function, how we mature. Mm-hmm. And, of course, some of these more obvious things that are happening now to our children. You know, it was very difficult to deal with something like the brain with ADHD. You get to autism, that begins to become obvious. It's more obvious than ADHD. But suddenly, this epidemic of diabetes, one out of every third child born now is going to develop diabetes. And if you happen to be in one of the minority groups, you are definitely going to have every other child is doomed to have diabetes sometimes during its life. We are not facing odds like that with cancer, Mm -hmm. but we certainly are with these kinds of diseases, and the public needs to wake up and be aware of this. Well, I think what's so troubling is that whenever we talk about diseases like diabetes or obesity, for example, there's a lot of blame on the person. In other words, If you've got these conditions, it's because you're making poor diet and exercise choices. And don't get me wrong. I think diet and exercise are very important. But I think the element that has been largely missing from the conversation has been these environmental chemicals that affect us initially in the womb, but then throughout the life cycle as we're exposed to them. For example, the bisphenol in can linings or the phthalates from plastic products. These are just a couple of the the compounds that come to mind. And I'm not quite sure, as you say, that the scientists who are looking at preventing diabetes and preventing these different birth defects really do have a good understanding of endocrine disruptors. Well, they don't. I mean, I sit and watch the news in the evening and the conclusions that people come to. I feel so sorry for those parents with autism or their children with ADHD and even those getting diabetes today because they feel guilty. They feel it is something they have done. And I especially ache for the people who have become fat, with the fat in the wrong place, the wrong kind of fat, that they're fighting every day. They have no idea where this has come from or what they have done or what they've been exposed to. But people lay a guilt trip on them, and they should not feel guilty. Mm -hmm. This is not their fault. 
And it's not because of the genes they inherited. It's because the genes they inherited have now been altered. So not the gene itself so that you have a mutation, but the genes work at different times and do things differently than they did in the past. Exactly. So this is so important, and I think this is a very important message to get out to the public. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Theo Colburn. She is the president of the Endocrine Disruptor Exchange. She is an environmental health analyst. She has a bachelor's degree in pharmacy from Rutgers University and a Ph.D. with several minor concentrations, including toxicology from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And I am grateful to your work at the Endocrine Disruption Exchange because it is a place where people can go to learn about these different chemicals. There's something for chemists who are looking for the chemical activities, but there's also something for the everyday person on the street who wants to learn more about endocrine disruptors. May I add something here? Please. Our, our acronym is TEDx. All right. Capital TEDx. Our website is endocrinedisruption.org. Okay. And we will make sure that that site is available on the radio link as well, so people can go and spend some time there. It's fascinating. You know, I stumbled upon an article the other day that spoke about scientists' duties to protect children. And I really appreciated this perspective because I feel like I've heard you also express this kind of feeling that I have this knowledge, therefore I have a duty to speak out and protect children. And I wish that all of those listeners who have backgrounds that are in public health or science really recognize the challenges to us and will take a look at the website, learn more about endocrine disruption, and begin to speak out about some of the toxins in our environment. You know what? They go to our website. There's a, a wonderful thing. It, it looks terribly complicated, but if you really sit down and take a few minutes to figure out how to work it out, it's called the Critical Windows of Development. For years, I tried to collect the literature. I have wonderful people who work with me. They know how to get into the literature. If it's out there, we can possibly find it. But I wanted to draw a map of what actually happens from the moment the sperm enters the egg through those 38 weeks until the baby is born. And I was shocked when we were able to finally build a map, and you will see it, it's a graph, and it's all in blue when you open up our critical windows of development. And just look there at what little information we know about how we actually develop and broken down by all the different organ systems. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. But then what we did just for the heck of it, we took a couple chemicals that are quite popular and we started collecting the literature about how those chemicals interfere with the development of that baby from conception to birth. And you will see some of those blue lines begin to turn red and you get a better understanding of the vulnerability of that developing embryo what you went through, we all came through this, and you can look there and get a lot out of it. It takes just a short amount of time to sit to play with it, but this has been one of the most useful teaching tools for professors on campuses around the country and also for those who are getting into the literature to begin to understand 
how vulnerable we are, we've really set ourselves up. Mm-hmm. You know, this all began to happen right near the end of World War II when we were developing all kinds of chemicals to make it easier to win wars. Mm-hmm. And then we converted over to what we called peacetime chemistry and just assumed that all these products that we were making, pesticides, cosmetics, perfumes, toiletries, uh, uh, materials, construction materials, we just assumed they were safe. Mm-hmm. Actually did. Until, actually, I think it was possibly the pesticides first and the PCBs that really began to ring a bell. Those persistent chemicals that build up in the tissues, in wildlife, and in humans until they reach the top of the food web. And then the problem was, of course, we found out that they had blown all over the world. Mm-hmm. Well, today we have a lot of new chemicals that are not persistent. They don't build up in our body, but they become so much a part of our everyday life, in our homes, in our offices, and especially where we recreate, where we go out and go to gyms and get involved in sports and athletics. Mm-hmm. We are so exposed to these chemicals, it's just amazing. I think it's easy for us to feel powerless in this system. We know we're exposed, we're living in this soup, in this stew of chemicals, and yet what can we do on an individual basis to make a change? Well, there are a lot of things people can do. First of all, I always say start with your yard. Get rid of the lawn. Stop using pesticides and fertilizer, and we need that water for other things. Put in uh, native plants. Use drip systems. I mean, I'm, I'm just sitting here looking around my house, the things that I've done. I got rid of anything that was made out of plastic in my kitchen. Got rid of anything that was Teflon. I use everything in glass. I freeze in glass. There's wonderful canning jars and all kinds of things that you can use to freeze in, and they don't break in the freezer. And they're kind of big in ways of protecting yourself. Start reading labels. Mm-hmm. Don't bring things into your home that have triclosan in them, or parabens in them. Get fussy because you can cause product deselection. Manufacturers are not going to produce products that you're not going to buy. So there are ways you can do that as well and also become informed. And it isn't always everything you eat that you bring into your home that you have to be worried about. Get up to date on the substitutes that we made for PCBs that are now brominated compounds instead of chlorinated compounds that are in your home, in in the upholstery and fabrics on furniture, fire retardants in so many of the products we have and especially the Teflon, where we're actually cooking with this material and getting it into our food, that would be one high-exposure way to become exposed to the fluorinated compounds that we have now moved to. We went from chlorine to bromine to fluorine, and these fluorinated compounds, of course, are now found from the Arctic to the Antarctic because they are stain removers, and they also are waterproofers. So practically everything we sent to the Arctic over the last 20 years or more has been stain-proofed and, and certainly waterproofed. So even those people living in the Arctic down to the Antarctic are exposed to very high concentrations of these chemicals. One of the but things... for your own personal safety, throw out half of the stuff you have under your kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. I use only vinegar in my wash, to do my wash. 
I use baking soda a lot of times. In the kitchen, we use Bonami. Mm-hmm. I'm going to endorse a product here because we know it's very safe. But you can start doing that right in your own home, and it begins to get fun. One of the things that you mentioned when we met that I would really like to touch on, we just have a few minutes left, but one of the other health issues that we've been looking at most recently is skyrocketing, in addition to autism and allergies and ADHD and diabetes, is this celiac disease or this intolerance to wheat, or we think to wheat. And I'm very concerned that there's something going on in our environment that is affecting our guts, and I've not been able to pinpoint it. Well, you happen to be speaking to a woman who has celiac disease, amazingly, and I raised four children that were born with celiac disease. That was heritable. But they went on a total carbohydrate-free diet, low carbs, in other words, no complex sugars at all. And after they were four and five years old, they were practically cured. Getting away from gluten will not help. But yes, you were right. My celiac disease didn't set on until I was exposed to very high concentrations of two chemicals in the same year. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I finally went to a doctor and he said to me, did it ever occur to you that you have celiac disease? And I think the reason I am alive today is because I've gone on that very low-carb, fresh fruits and vegetables. I eat everything around the perimeter of the supermarket. I only eat fresh fruits and vegetables, and I eat lots of meat and protein. But yes, I do believe it is possible because what's so important is that these chemicals can interfere with what is called your CP450 system, which is part of your immune system. Mm-hmm. These chemicals compromise the immune system so that what happens is you are more likely to be exposed to these chemicals and what happens is that you're not going to be producing the enzymes you need to digest the food that you would take in and consequently they get all the way through your stomach, they get into the intestinal tract and that's where the bacteria and the other organisms in your gut start converting those chemicals into toxic chemicals that really make you feel sick. Mm -hmm. You do not feel well. They produce chemicals that affect the brain, Mm -hmm. and you are miserable Mm -hmm. until you can get away from eating the kinds of food that create these situations in your stomach. You're not going to get over it. I'm sorry I didn't want to go into a discourse about celiac disease, but this has been a very big part of my life. I and I'm sure that's why I'm still alive today, because of the diet I am on, the fact that I eat locally grown food and as much as I can. Diet is so important. I eat absolutely no processed foods and have it now for the first last 30 years. Dr. Colburn, we're going to have to direct people to the website. That's www.endocrinedisruption.org because our 30 minutes is up, but I want to let everyone know that we've been talking to Dr. Theo Colburn. She is the president of the Endocrine Disruption Exchange, and she is an environmental health analyst, extremely well-trained. And 
extremely eloquent on the topic of endocrine disruptors and how they affect our health. In closing, I want to mention that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We have had too little time together, Dr. Colburn, but I want to thank you for raising these very important issues and once again direct our listeners to the Endocrine Disruption Exchange. That is www.endocrinedisruption.org. Thank you for spending time with me this afternoon. Thank you for having me.